I'm going to record this. It is the 27th of June, 2020, and it is a Saturday morning. And this should be, from what I'm gathering from the forces that be, this should be our last go-around on the phone next Saturday. By next Saturday, we should have a Zoom format. But what we're going to do is, after we're done, in possibly in lieu of questions and answers, or in addition to, we'll play it by ear, we're going to have this morning a short business meeting, and Pam and Maria and I think Nancy or whomever, they're going to sort of uh, tell you what's going on because they're more in tune with things than I. Um, we have been studying Chapter 2, There Is a Solution. And just as a matter of review, before we get to our current place, our current place, by the way, is going to be on page 22. And on page 22, there is a paragraph that starts with, why does he behave like this? And that's where we're going to be. But let's not land there yet. Let's kind of back up just a little bit. And we have chapter two, there is a solution. And I know that I've talked about this before, but for the sake of its importance, for the sake of the vital nature of this, I want to just remind you, that there is a solution is very, very important. If you listen to the morning uh, big book studies on a vision for you, we're going to begin with, we began with the title page. We began with, uh, we're going to start going to the preface. We're going to talk about the fact of a lot of history. We're going to talk about the fact that for centuries there was no solution and people tried religion, and I'm not knocking religion. I'm not, I'm not casting any negative aspersion on religion. I am absolutely not doing that. It has its place, and it's wonderful, and it even says in the big book that we should admire those people who believe in God. We should admire those people because they have something, and that's fine, and I agree with that. But in terms of a relief, notice I didn't say cure, for as a relief to alcoholism, as a relief to our compulsive overeating or any other addiction, they are not effective. It's just not effective. And so for centuries, there were people who would go around from town to town peddling snake oil. Now, what is snake oil? Snake oil is just what, when we talk about medical quackery. It's something that just doesn't work. As a matter of fact, in a lot of cases, the potions that they would sell to people to quote-unquote, cure alcoholism, were nothing more than hooch, nothing more than bootleg whiskey. And it was just a, it was just a scam. It was just a scam. And, and people would hypnotize alcoholics or they would put incantations on them. What they did with Dr. Bob before he met Bill Wilson is they actually had a prayer meeting about Dr. Bob and they prayed and Bill Wilson finally came. But in terms of anything except a spiritual awakening or spiritual experience as the result of the steps, in terms of anything like that, nothing was effective. Just nothing was effective. So the fact that you have a title of a chapter, there is a solution, 
is very encouraging, particularly more in 1939 than it is today, because some of us get very complacent. We get used to the fact that everywhere you look, there's another location where there's a 12-step program. And if that isn't enough because of the coronavirus, we now deliver 12-step meetings right to your laptop or right to your desktop or your smartphone, because now you have not only an abundance of meetings that are face-to-face, a lot of them are obviously shut down for right now, but now on your laptop, your smartphone, your desktop, whatever you're using, whatever format you're using, we're delivering meetings right to you. But sometimes we lose sight of the fact that that was far from always the case. So take a minute, if you can, during your day, during your week, to thank your higher power for the abundance of opportunity that we have to recover. We have podcasts and we have all manner of websites and just lots and lots of ways to connect with recovering people. But in 1939, sadly, that wasn't the case. And prior to 1939, those Um, opportunities to gain any type of relief were just not there. So thank you, God, that we have a way out, that we have something we can do that will give us relief from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And when I look at the title of the chapter and I put the emphasis on the A, it gives me hope and direction. Now, this is strictly speaking for me. I am not telling you what you should do. I am not telling you that there's only one way out. I'm strictly speaking for me. And when I look at the title of the chapter, there is a solution. It makes it simpler for me. One of the things that I've always had trouble with, one of the things that I have struggled with is making decisions. I've always had a hard time making decisions. And so what I would do is I would abdicate any type of responsibility to someone else. I did that in my marriage. I was married for about 17 and a half years. We were together 18 and a half years. And my ex-wife, her name was, is, not was, is Esther. And it still is. Uh, I let her make every decision. Now, why did I let her make every decision? Not because I'm such a gentleman, not because I'm such a nice guy, not because of anything, you know, altruistic or pleasant. I let her make every decision out of fear because I didn't want to be responsible for any decision going wrong. And so I would allow her to make every decision. So when you give me a title of a chapter, there is a solution. It makes it so much easier for me. Now I don't have to decide between column A and column B and column C like you would in some restaurants. I can just move forward with my program of recovery. Now again, the chapter starts out talking about the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And one of the things that I believed with all my pure heart was that these ideas that I had about food, these behaviors that I had around food were unique and secret unto me. It never really occurred to me that there were people who 
thought about food like I did and who behaved about food like I did. I knew other people that were overweight, but they were not as overweight as I. I knew other people that were more hooked into food. I called them foodies, but I didn't have a name for it, but I knew that somehow, some way I was different. And in my ego, in my disease, in my ego, I will never see things right. I will either see that I'm better than you or I will see that I'm worse than you. And I have a judgmental mind. And when I look at you and you're reasonably attractive or reasonably of a normal weight, it never really occurs to me that you can know my pain or that you could understand what it is that I'm going through. And the more I became able to lower that ego, to lower that insanity, and I started really listening to people. We used to have a lot of speaker meetings in Chicago. We had a lot of speaker meetings, and I told you the story. I'll tell you again very briefly. It was a Thursday night, probably 20 below zero if it was one. It was freezing cold in Chicago, miserable, miserable day in Chicago. It was a Thursday night, and the speaker was Della F. She wouldn't mind me telling you that. She was the speaker at Swedish Covenant Hospital in the, on the north side of Chicago, around Foster in California, and I didn't live too far from there, so I went to those meetings. And she had a Cadillac Sedan DeVille parked in the parking lot. Brand new Cadillac, man. It was gorgeous. And she had jewelry and gold and she had dresses that cost more than I had, you know, in the bank account or whatever. And I thought to myself, what do I have in common with this person? She was married. She was a Roman Catholic housewife on the north side of Chicago. And she had a three-year-old and a five-year-old, which meant to me that she had had sex, which I had never had at that point. And so I figured, well, why would I want to listen to this person? And then she spoke, and she talked about buying the Halloween candy twice and a third time and a fourth time. And she didn't know how she was going to hide the expense from her husband. And then she talked about baking a cake for a friend's birthday and getting up at two o'clock in the morning to lick some of the frosting and she ended up eating the entire cake. And then she had to go, you know, this was not in the days where 24-hour grocery stores were very prevalent. You know, today you sometimes assume that some of these grocery stores, I mean, at least in Arizona, and I know for a fact in Chicago, they're open 24 hours a day. Well, this was not not the case you know, years and years ago in Chicago, grocery stores didn't open like they do today. And she had to get ingredients and rebake the cake. And she knew that her husband knew that she had already baked the cake. So she had to make up a lie and tell him that it fell on the floor or something. I don't remember exactly what she said. And for the very first time in my life, I understood that just because you don't look like me and just because you may not be my gender or my age group and just because you may not have the same religious background as I, just because you may not have the same ethnicity or race as I, that you are me and I am you. And so for the very first time in my life, I began an understanding 
that there was not only hope for me, but there was a home for me. And that home is in Overeaters Anonymous. And why is that my home? Because there are people on this line this morning, or if you're listening to this on a podcast, there are people like you, if you are a compulsive overeater, that speak and understand the language of the heart and that I can come to you and I can speak my truth that I never could speak before. And I had nowhere to dump that truth because I didn't know how to express to somebody what I was really thinking or what I was really thinking because all I got in return was rejection and abuse and excoriation and admonishment to become a stronger man, to become a young boy that had the willpower, that could push himself away from the table, that could eat half, that could just eat half. And I tried and I couldn't eat half. I couldn't push myself away from the table. And I tried, and with tears in my eyes, I would run and I would say, God, please take my life. I can't live in this world with the food, and I can't live in this world without the food. And by the time I was seven and eight years old, it was pounded into me that because I ate the way I ate and because I was as fat as I was and because I was who I was, I was existentially incorrect and I was unfit to live in this world and I was unfit to draw air from the environment. And one day you gave me your hand to hold in a circle and we said the serenity prayer together. And one day, you reached out to me, not you personally, but you second person plural. You reached out to me, and in your, in your disease or in your recovery, you gave me hope that there were other people like me and that I'm not as hopeless as I once thought I was. And maybe the fellowship never got anybody sober. I understand that. I go to... I go to great lengths to, to make that very clear. I cannot recover on fellowship alone. But what this chapter is telling me is that I need, want, desire, require that place to go where I can be understood, where I can understand and be understood. And by coming to me with your truth, it made me feel more human and less like dying. And one day, one very, very memorable day in my life, I started noticing something I had never noticed before, that I had gone to many hundreds and hundreds of meetings. But what happened, one day I noticed that God whispered on the one ember of my heart that was still not burned out. And when he whispered on that ember that was still unburnt in my heart, one day I was going to a meeting, it was in Chicago, and I wanted to live more than I wanted to die. And for the first time in my life, I became conscious of how much more I wanted to live than I wanted to die. And so the goals that I set for myself were not goals of failure and death and destruction, but the goals that I set for myself were of abundance, and the goals that I set for myself were 
goals that were worthy of life rather than worthy of death. And so it took not just a loving God, but the embodiment of God's language, the embodiment of God's message came through your mouth. And until I got that, I didn't want to live. When God can't come, he sends people, and often he sends you. And that's why it's vital for every one of us to embrace and appreciate and propagate the fellowship right along with the program of recovery because there needs to be a conduit of the message of God and that conduit is people, people like us. There is no more you and me. There is no more them and me. And that's how I went to meetings for years because I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room and I was hundreds of pounds fatter than anybody in that room. And now it is us. We speak and understand the language of the heart. And that's the most beautiful thing in the world. We also talk about on page 19, we feel that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. Now that is a very, very important sentence there. We feel that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning means that we're going to have to work the rest of the steps in so many sects of OA, in so many meetings of OA, in so many dialects of OA, it is about step one, and they get stuck in the first half of the first step. I don't want to be critical. I'm just saying this is what I'm observing. And so it says a much more, I'm on page 19 near the top, a much more important demonstration of our principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. Lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. What does that mean? It means that we're going to have to work the steps in every area of our life. And as the disease vandalizes and putrefies and burns to the ground the other aspects of your life while it's making you overweight or underweight, those areas of our life, the personal relationships, the professional relationships, the maybe codependency or the Al-Anon issues, the self-esteem, the way we think about ourselves, the love addiction, all these various things that we may or may not suffer from as the disease of compulsive overeating vandalizes and putrefies and rots out these things in our life and makes them worse. Now we start to see after a while, not only is our weight becoming normalized, but so is every aspect of our life. That's why I can't say enough that God chose the word in the second step, sanity rather than the word abstinence or sobriety. Because sobriety, and we're going to be talking about this a lot as time goes on, because this is something that a lot of sponsors just do not talk about. The word sanity raises the bar on what the recovery will do. And as we 
practice the disease, and the disease putrefies and vandalizes and destroys every aspect of our life, the recovery remodels, reconstructs, and reconfigures every area of our life. I didn't come here to escape from low self-esteem, but I like myself today. And why do I like myself today? I like myself because I don't lie to myself anymore. I don't disgrace myself and I don't blame myself that I was caught at McDonald's or I was caught at the bagel bakery or I was caught at the, at the Burger King and somebody saw me in there and I feel like dying over the guilt and the shame and the remorse, and the only one I have to blame is myself. I don't lie to myself today. I don't put myself in compromised situations. And I do self-esteemable activities. I help others to the best of my ability. I am of service to the sick and suffering. I do the best that I can. Sometimes people call me and they get upset with me because I can't answer their question or because they don't like the answer that I give them. I can live with that today. It doesn't destroy me. I can live with that today. And so my self-esteem, the way I deal with other people, my relationships, hopefully romantic, but in all my relationships today, I am better equipped to be who God wanted me to be. No longer am I a person who is afraid of his own shadow, cowering in the corner, hoping to guess right as to what you want me to be and what you want me to say and what you want me to know I don't have to look in the mirror and see your face coming back at me. I can be who I am. I can look in the mirror and see me rather than look in the mirror and see you. And if you've been where I am with your insanity of wanting to please people, you know exactly what I'm talking about. These things that's why these things are being reconstructed. The steps are divided into four sections. Admission is step one. Submission is two through seven. Restitution is eight and nine. And reconstruction is 10, 11, and 12. That's admission, step one, admission. Submission is two through seven. Restitution is eight and nine. And reconstruction is 10, 11, and 12. In 10, we continue. In 11, we improve. And in 12, we practice. And as I do these things, I am more self-assured in a non-egotistical, crazy way. I can be myself and like myself without, unbelievably ins without unbelievable insanity going through elevating me in my mind to a place above you. No, what I have become is what I never wanted to be, and I love it, and that is I've become another bozo on the bus. I wanted to be better than you. I wanted to be worse than you so I could manipulate you into taking care of me. Now I can be one of you, and I do not have to be elevated or denigrated. I can be another bozo on the bus, and being among you 
is the greatest honor that any human being can have bestowed upon them. Who am I wanting to be with? You, the fellowship of the Spirit. And I want to trudge that road of happy destiny with all of you. Trudge means to walk with purpose. To walk with purpose. Let's continue and we'll get to where we're going to start today. We're um, looking here at page uh, 20, or excuse me, the bottom of 19. We talked about the top of 19. Now we're going to look at the very bottom of 19. And it says here, most of us sense. When you see that sentence, that's where I'm going to be reading from. Bottom of 19, most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. See, there was a point in my life, and I see it today so much, and I, I just run from it. I, I, I run from it. You know, I have friends of mine, if you don't think about politics or you don't think about corona or you don't think about sports or women or men or whatever, you don't think like them, you're, you're a dog, you're dirt. I don't have to live that way today. I'm not going through this, this insanity of uh, you're either with me or you're against me. I don't have to do that today. So what it says here, more useful to others. Thank God. I sponsor people and I know people in program, I am completely diverse from those people on any issue you could imagine. But on one thing, we are agreed that we want to recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and that's all that counts. And that's why within the body of this our big book study or any of our meetings, we do not discuss outside issues. We don't discuss outside issues. We can discuss it before the meeting. We can discuss it after the meeting, but not during the meeting. You know, during the meeting, we don't discuss these things because these are things that separate us rather than joining us together. What's the first tradition is unity, is unity. Then it goes on, at the, I'm at the top of 20. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. Not in a sick way, not in an alanonic way, not in a codependent way, in a healthy way. And what's the difference? What's the difference between helpful and sick? The word comes down, it comes down to one word. It comes down to results. If I am looking to get a result from you, hang on, I've got to take up this Ovasser here. Hold on. It's not only very hot here, but the humidity is minuscule, and that's why I'm, I, I drink about a gallon of water a day, and it's just hard to talk without taking a sip once in a while. Okay, where was I going? Oh. It's very hard to think that we are going to have a fellowship where we have such diverse ideas, but the secret is we don't discuss them. We do not discuss them. And what is the difference between healthy helping and unhealthy helping? It boils down to results. If I am looking to help you because I want you to like me, if I am looking to help you excuse me, because I want you to be a White Sox fan or a Cubs fan or a Bears fan, whatever that may be, or I want you to like red, 
that is sick. I'm going to help you. I don't care what you like. I don't care what you don't like. It's of no consequence to me. It means nothing. I'm not here to get a result from you. Even when we start to talk about step nine, which isn't going to be for a while, when we talk about step nine, remember always we are there to sweep our snow from the sidewalk. We are not there to get the person to be friends with us or we're not there to get the person to like us or to do anything. So the one word that separates healthy giving from unhealthy giving giving is the word results. Or you could also, if you don't like the word results, you can use the word intention. What is your intention here? If your intention is to be helpful, I actually like intention maybe better. What is your intention here? Is it to get the person to do something or think something? If it is, that's sick. Or is it to be truly helpful with no expectation of what the person does or thinks? That's the healthy giving that we're looking for. Okay, let's go to our reading today. Let's go to page 22. Why does he behave like this? That's where we're going to begin today. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle, with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it he takes that one drink? I'm going to answer the question, even though the book doesn't really call for me to answer the question. When I look at my own behavior, I don't have to look at you, but I want to cover something just for a second here. I'm going to be speaking from the standpoint of a compulsive overeater who has lived in extreme morbid obesity. But I want to be very clear here, and I think it's important that I be clear. There are people in Overeaters Anonymous, and Overeaters Anonymous tried to shove them out in the early 80s, that do not and will not ever, no matter what they do or don't do, they will never experience the disease from my vantage point. They will never achieve, achieve isn't the right word, they will never experience extreme morbid obesity. They get the same effect. Remember Dr. Silkworth talked about the effect. What is the effect? The effect is the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by taking a few drinks, drinks which we see others taking with impunity. That effect is that sense of ease and comfort. That's what we're really looking for. I'm not looking for Chips Ahoy cookies. I'm not looking for Kit Kat bars. I'm looking for the effect that I know those foods will give me. I want to be very clear on that. But there are people who get that effect by starving themselves. They get that effect by starving themselves, and they are called anorexics. Are they any different from me? No. They obsess about food like I do. They obsess about not eating food the way I obsess about eating food. And I've used this phrase before. I will use it again. It's the only thing I could tell you. I have a couple of friends of mine. One lives in Colorado. One lives in California. And if I brought them in front of you, you would think they were models or movie stars. 
you would think, what does this person know about the hell that I'm going through? Let me assure you that between these two people and millions and millions like them that appear normal, they are dumpster diving, back alley, gutter, compulsive overeaters of the most horrible variety. We have people that are anorexic. Along with anorexia or separate from anorexia, we have people in the program that are bulimics. And bulimia comes in several different forms. One form of bulimia, the most common form of bulimia, is regurgitation. It's they eat massive quantities of food and force themselves to vomit the food up so that they don't gain weight. That is one classic form of bulimia. But one of the people that I spoke to you about that I think would be like a, you'd think they were movie stars or models or something, she is an exercise bulimic. And for seven and eight hours a day, she would put her body through hell, exercising, running, doing whatever it is she does to the detriment of her muscles, her skeletal system, her ligaments, her tendons. She would injure herself by over-exercising. That's one form of bulimia. That's two forms of bulimia, excuse me. And then there's a third form of bulimia. There may be others that I don't know about. If there are, call me after we're done and I'd be open to listening. Another form of bulimia is called laxative abuse. They will eat massive quantities of food, <clears throat> excuse me, and then they will take laxatives to purge the food out of their body. So it doesn't matter whether you are a laxative bulimic, exercise bulimic, anorexic, or compulsive overeater that gets obese, or combinations of all these things. What you have in a lot of cases are we have the pendulum that swings, the, uh, the pendulum. It goes from one extreme to the other. And sometimes we as addicts go from one extreme to the other. But if we're looking at the sentence here, why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it he takes that one drink? I can answer it in one word. Effect. He, he or she is looking for that effect. What is the effect? It is the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by taking a few drinks. And when we're not drinking or eating or doing what we're doing, we are restless, irritable, and discontent. Throw in scared to death, guilty, shame-based, fearful, resentful, throw in whatever you want to throw in. And as those emotions start to build up within us, eating becomes a step up from where we are. Now, I don't mind covering this again, and I want you to, to, to really look at this. Food was never the problem. Food was the solution to the problem. Let me say that again for those of you who may be new. Those of you who have heard me a bunch of times, you, can, you, you could deliver. If I got sick, you could do this in your sleep. Food is the solution to the problem. What is the problem? The problem is the buildup of guilt and shame and fear and sometimes happiness. 
and and we have this buildup of emotions and we can't handle it and the brain gets a signal that says we're in pain down here we're guilt-ridden we're shame-based we're fearful we're angry we're self-righteous or we're happy Many of us have eaten railroad cars full of Chips Ahoy cookies because things went well for us, too, didn't we? We didn't just eat when things were bad. No, it's not quite that simple. We eat to celebrate, too. Screw it, I'm going to eat. You know, that's the, Screw it, I'm going to eat whatever. You know, It's not on my food plan, but the hell with it, I'm going to eat it anyway because things went well for me. You've, you've all done that. See, if food was the problem, diets would work. If food was the problem, hospitals would turn out winners, and they don't. If food was the problem, then bariatric surgery would solve all the problems, and they don't. I'm not knocking bariatric surgery. I'm not knocking hospitals. I'm not knocking diets. But for people like us, they are not normally a solution. Now, persons who have had the bariatric surgery sometimes lose quite a bit of weight, but as, as of right now, there's nothing that that bariatric surgeon can do for your brain, so you end up back in Overeaters Anonymous because you can't handle the pain of not eating. And so food became the solution to the problem. It was never the problem. It was the solution to the problem. Well, what's the, what happens when, if, if I can't eat because of the allergy? That allergy is that unnatural physical allergy an ab- adverse abnormal reaction to the food, beverage, or substance. If I can't eat because of the allergy and I can't keep from eating because of the twist of the mind, then I'm powerless over food. You see, if I didn't have the physical allergy, I would carry around, like, have you ever seen Batman with his utility belt and he's got the bat thing in there, whatever it is, it's bat, bat, bat cane, bat car, bat whatever it is, doesn't matter. I would carry around bat M&Ms in my pocket, preferably those with peanuts, because the other ones, I'm sure these are not Jewish people buying these things, but I'm sure that the Jewish people are buying the ones with peanuts because it's so much better. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But the bottom line is this. I would carry around a bunch of M&Ms in my pocket because they're easy, they're small. And when I was feeling a little shamed or I was feeling guilty or I was feeling happy or I was feeling angry or jealous, I would pop an M&M in my mouth and I'd be fine. But the physical allergy makes that impossible. So let's consolidate this for the sake of time. I know that you know that we go very slow here, but I want to answer this. So I'm going to take the time to answer this question because I think it deserves an answer. Without that physical allergy, food would be great. It would be fantastic, but I have the allergy. So if I can't eat because of the allergy and I can't keep from eating because of the twist of the mind, I'm powerless over food. So it begs the question, what is a fella to do? I am going to bring the necessary power, because it says in the big book, lack of power is my dilemma. Lack of power was our dilemma, it says. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the necessary power into the equation. And the actions that are, are required to do that are called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about bringing the necessary power into the equation 
And I choose to call that necessary power God. You can call it whatever you want. Ocean, river, mountain, stream, doorknob. You you don't want to have a God that's a deity, religious deity, group of drunks, gift of desperation, whatever. So why does he take that drink? Because he is looking for a way out of how he or she feels when they're not eating. And that's basically the answer. I know that the answer that I gave is very long, and please forgive me, but basically you can't really understand the answer without the other explanation in my view. Why does he take that drink when his whole life has been destroyed by alcohol? He takes it because he doesn't like the way he feels when he's not doing that. And the mental blank spot, the mental twist, and the physical allergy conspire to kill us. That's why. Let's continue. Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? Many of you are very successful at what you do. I know for a fact that there's people on this line right now that have enjoyed great success. I know of at least several lawyers that are on the phone right now. I know of at least several housewives raising young children that are on the line right now. I know of some people that have other professions, from real estate to God knows what, social worker to God knows what, teachers. But there's one thing you can't do. You can't control the amount you eat once you get started, and you can't keep from eating now that you want to. That's two things, sorry. There's two things you can't do. You can't control the amount of of M&Ms that you'll eat once you start eating them, and you can't keep from eating them now that you want to. You cannot do it. Perhaps there will never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We are not sure why. Once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. We will react differently from other people because we have a body and a mind that are different from other people. And one of the trap doors that many of us fall into is we are given to compare ourselves to other people. That gets reinforced by our parents. We are reinforced to compare ourselves to others when our moms say, why can't you be more like Sally? Why can't you be more like Mary? Why can't you be more like Fred? Why can't you be more like Jim? And so we learn to compare ourselves to other people. And when we do so, we will never come out okay. Because comparison is always done when we're feeling bad. Notice how when we're feeling really good, we're feeling accomplished, we're feeling like we're in recovery. We are not so very given to compare ourselves, but we seem to do it when times are very bad. And I hear the language of the people that call me all the time. And when I hear the people that are in the disease, 
They're always comparing themselves. I heard Joe on the line, or I heard Yitzchak Rabinowitz on the line, and I heard Shloimi Chaim on the line, and I want what they have. Well, do what they do. You want what they have? Do what they do. Yeah, but they don't have kids. Well, they may have other problems. They may have other situations that you may not be aware of. Nobody gets out of this without some problems. You know, there's only one group of people on earth that have no problems. There's one group of people on earth that have absolutely no problems. Of course, they're in the cemetery. Because if you are alive, you have problems. Little babies, you figure what kind of problems could they have? Why are they crying if they have no problems? They're crying because they don't know how to express what they need, and they need something, and they don't know what else to do. They don't know what else to do. Like them, sometimes I find myself crying too. But the bottom line is, it's always going to be something. It's always going to be something. In Yiddish, we have an expression, Azoigetis. And what does Azoigetis mean in Yiddish? Azoigetis means it's always something. My mother used to say to me, Azoigetis mit you, my son. Azoigetis mit you, my son, means it's always something with you, my son. Always something with you, my son. Bottom of 22. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. Notice it doesn't say he reacts exactly like other men. Look at that word. It's important. He reacts much like other men. And if you've been around dry drunks or dieters, as we would say in in here, if you've been around dry drunks, they may not be drinking, but good Lord in heaven, I want nothing to do with these people. They are miserable bastards most of the time. They are jealous and they're angry and they're hate-filled because they don't have anything to take off the edge. So when it says, much like other men, point out to your sponsees that it does not say exactly like other men. Notice that word because we are not like them. And when we get to chapter 3, which is the next chapter, we are going to read a sentence that says the idea that somehow, someday, we will be like other people, we will be able to drink like other people, excuse me, has to be smashed. Substitute in for drink. Think and act and react like other people has to be smashed. So this word much is very very important and God put it in the book deliberately he didn't say while we're not drinking we react exactly like other men he put much much means close but no cigar close but no cigar and if you've been around dry drunks like I have in life then you know hang on one second my focaccia allergies are acting up Sorry. Just because we live in a desert, you think there's no allergies here? 
Veya's mirror. I cannot begin to tell you the amount of Kleenex I have thrown away because the tears are flying down my eyes and the and the nose is going and the eyes are going. My God in heaven, it is sometimes a, a tra- uh, sometimes a challenge. Okay, he reacts much like other men. I won't spend a bunch of time on this much, but I hope that if you are a sponsor and you're going through this chapter with somebody, that you point out the word much and notice it doesn't say exactly like other men or like other men. He, had a, he wanted to put in that adjective, much. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens both in the bodily allergy, mental twist, sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. Now, again and again and again in the book, we are going to get repetition. And the purest form of of teaching, the purest form of learning is through repetition. That repetition is very, very important. This chapter is about step number one. Let's not lose sight of that. We are in step one. The doctor's opinion, Bill's story, although the second eight pages of Bill's story is really more about uh, step two. But um, there is a solution and more about alcoholism are all step one. So we're still talking about the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind, and it gets mentioned over and over again. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. Now, oh yeah, I'm running out of time already. Oh, yeah. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Now, the next sentence here is very key. Let's read it, and then we're going to talk about it, okay? Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Now, we're going to talk about that sentence possibly for the rest of the time we have left. I'm going to try to finish the paragraph only because that's how I, I can know next week where to start. Anyway, the only step that deals with the body is step one. The first half of step one, we admitted we were powerless over food, dash, new thought, and our lives had become unmanageable. Now, it is assumed that if you absorb step one into your soul, that you have put down the food. And if you've put down the food and you keep reviewing your food plan and you keep reading ingredients, that the physical allergy will not get triggered. My physical allergy has not been triggered in 21 years. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body The rest of the 11 steps and half the first step, but the rest of the 11 steps are 100% dedicated to the mind rather than the body. Once the body is treated by a secession of ingestment, a, a, a stopping of the ingesting of these foods and these chemicals. Now, 
I just told you that my physical allergy hasn't been triggered. But here's what I learned, because sometimes it gets me crazy. Years ago, I started coming under the category, and again, I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about you. Okay, so I'm not telling you what you need to do here. I'm just commenting on me and my life because that's the only life I've ever lived is mine. I went to the cardiologist. I have a, a condition called AFib. What is AFib? It's atrial fibrillation of the heart. Your heart beats like a drum. Boom, 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 boom. My beats like a bongo. It might be electrical system leading to my heart has been destroyed. One of the things that destroyed it, the most damaging thing that destroyed it, was the massive weight gain and the massive weight loss that I've experienced. Another thing that triggered it for me, I do not want you to come back to me and say these things work for me. God bless you. You don't have to notify me. of I'm talking about me. Is in artificial sweeteners, cyclamates, sweet and low, I can't think of the rest of them because I'm on the phone. I, I don't, uh, stevia uh, and, the, and the chemicals that they put in, uh, in the, the food. Because when it says sugar-free, you know that they're going to put in stuff in there. You know, what do we say? There's a chemistry set in every serving. Okay. These chemicals that they put in the artificial sweeteners destroyed the electrical system of my heart. Please do not call me later and say you can drink these things or eat these things and you're fine with them. I, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. These artificial sweeteners were a destructive force in my life, and I did not know it. Once the cardiologist mandated that I cease and desist on them immediately, for some reason... And I know, I think I know, but it's an outside issue, so I'm not going to bring it in here. My desire to compulsively overeat diminished greatly. My desire for even the food that's on my food plan, I became more neutral about it. I became more benign to the idea of food. I hope I'm making sense, and once again, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm not here to comment on what you do. There's no, it's not a right or wrong thing. I'm talking about me. For me, these artificial sweeteners, unbeknownst to me, were triggering a desire for more food. They were triggering an unnatural affinity to think about food and to eat food that is not on my food plan. And when I stopped them, it helped me tremendously. Please don't yell at me later. These things work for you. God bless you. I'm just talking about me. Okay, now, therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. What we're going to do here is we're going to affect a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And in, and in affecting a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, the guilt, the shame, the remorse, the fear, the resentment, the happiness, the jealousies, all of those emotions will become abated. 
and they will diminish to the point where they will not trigger a binge. They will not raise to the level of what I call the red line. And what is the red line? It's that line where they cross where your brain will insist that you eat because eating will become a step up. None of the other steps are dealing with the body. None of the other steps are dealing with an ego reduction. None of the other steps are dealing with the diminishment of these emotions that have been demanding food from the day you were born. And when these emotions abate, when these emotions diminish, the desire to kill yourself is simply not there with food, and sanity will have returned. This is a key sentence in the book. If you are sponsoring, please make sure that your sponsees see this sentence as being one of the keys to what this is all about. The body will become more normalized. If you're underweight, it'll be, you know, you'll be at or approaching a healthy body weight. So if you're underweight, like I told you, my friends, they start to gain weight. If you're overweight like me, maybe not as much as me, but you know, whatever, then you start to normalize. That's why we say in Overeaters Anonymous that the definition of abstinence is to refrain, abstain from, excuse me, abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors, bulimia and you know, those things, so that we're at or approaching a healthy body weight. This sentence is one of the keys to understanding what this program is all about. The program is about the mind, and the first half of the first step is about the mind and the body. But all the rest of the 11 steps center in treating the mind, treating the ego. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. Why would I do something like go to Kentucky Fried Chicken or go to, you know, Chips Ahoy or go to Oreo Cookies or whatever? Why would I do that? Why would someone who has known loneliness as, as, as unbelievably intense, why would someone who went on their first date as a 35-year-old, why would someone who didn't have genitalia, why would someone who was emasculated by the time he was 12, why would someone who lacked that, why would someone who has been as beat up as me go right into a grocery store and come out with bags and bags of Doritos and bags and bags of ice cream and cookies and God knows what. Why? Because I can't bear the pain of not eating unless I am in recovery. The pain of not eating is too much for me to bear. The emotions are too much for me to bear. They are too much. And eating becomes a step up from where I am. They sound like the philosophy of a man who having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. 
I'm feeling pain. It could be a Sunday. It could be a holiday. I'm alone. All of my friends are married. All my friends are married. They have children. They have grandchildren. If I compare myself to them, I will kill myself. I have one child. She's 25 years old. She'll be 26 in December. She hasn't spoken to me in 10 years. I wasn't invited to her wedding. I never got a chance to give away the bride. I never had a chance to see her in her wedding dress. I never had a chance to do any of those things. I wouldn't wish that on you. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. My wife threw me out like I was trash. She had already started a a relationship with another man while we were living under the same roof. She was in a relationship with another man. I wouldn't wish that on you. I hope that never happens to you. That's a that's a horrible pain. And now I'm going to go make it worse with Kit Kat bars and M&Ms and, and cookies? Yes. Because my brain will only be able to focus in on what those foods are going to do for me and the mental blank spot will allow me to forget what those foods have done to me. I will not be able to conceptualize that Kentucky Fried Chicken will make none of those things repaired. It will not do one thing for me but make me fatter, and there's not a problem I've ever had. There's not a problem I've ever had that being fatter and eating more food couldn't make worse. Every problem I've ever had in my entire life was compounded by the fact that I was morbidly obese and eating and embarrassing myself with farting and pissing in my pants and crapping in my pants and not being able to say to the world, I am a man. I am a human being. I'm viable. I couldn't pay my own bills. I lied when the truth would have served me better. I ate food that I know was killing me, and I ate it against my will. I didn't want to be doing this. I needed to pay my taxes. I needed to pay the rent. I needed to pay the electric bill, the phone bill. God knows what. I drove without insurance for years because I didn't have the money to buy the insurance, but I had the money for Chips Ahoy, and I had the money for Doritos, and I had the money for God knows what. That's where this disease took me. That's where this disease took me. And my brain could not focus on what it knew to be true, and that is this behavior is killing me. But I couldn't face the pain of not eating without eating. Does that make sense? If it does, you're in the right place. You're welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. Welcome home. I'm going to say that again. My brain could not conceive that the pain of not eating the pain, excuse me, yeah, no, the pain of not eating was okay. I had to eat to stay free of that pain. 
and I knew that it was killing me, and I ate railroad cars full of Kit Kat bars to kill the shame and the guilt and the remorse of eating railroad cars full of Kit Kat bars. I was eating to kill the pain of eating. That is not a life that I would want for anybody. Like yourself, I sometimes see children. I see little kids, and they're morbidly obese. And their brothers and sisters or their friends are running way ahead of them, playing a sport or doing whatever kids do. And they're bringing up the rear going, wait up, wait up. And that was me. And I cry for them. I cry for them. I know what they're in for. Not long ago, before Corona, this was way before, it was last summer actually, I was waiting in line at my local grocery store and there was a woman with a set of twins and another girl and they were waiting in line at the grocery store before me in the checkout line. And one of the twins and the other little girl were morbidly obese, and the other little girl who was one of the twins was normal body weight. And the mother had to be 300 pounds, had to be 300 pounds. And they were pulling candy bars off the rack, and they were eating them even before they were checking out of the grocery store. And one of the boys, the only boy, the twin boy, obviously his name was Jeffrey. And the little girl who was one of the twins took a candy bar and was not eating it. And the older girl and the twin, whose name was Jeffrey, obviously, were eating the candy bars. And the mother was eating her candy bar as they were checking out of the store. The mother was putting through on the checkout thing the empty wrappers so that she could be charged for the candy. And the reason I know this little boy's name is Jeffrey is the little girl who's part of the twins said to him, Jeffrey, don't you dare take my candy bar later. I'm saving it for later. You always take my food. And my heart broke. I know what this little boy and this little girl are in for. This is a vicious disease. This disease doesn't care who it kills. This disease doesn't care what it takes from you. This disease doesn't care where it leaves you. This disease doesn't care. In the 12 and 12, Bill calls it a rapacious creditor. It's a murderer. It's a terrorist. It's an unflinching serial killer. But it doesn't even have the decency to take you out. It tortures you and drives you into a state of loneliness and desperation and it drives you into a place of disparity long before it takes you. And it will destroy those around you. And it will drag you down and beat you down in the most unmerciful way. Continuing with the paragraph, if you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he'll laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. 
Why would I talk? I know you don't understand me. I'm tired of talking to doctors who've never been a compulsive overeater. I'm tired of talking to teachers and rabbis and people who are not afflicted with this and try to explain what this is. I'm not doing that anymore. But I have a place to go. I have a place to go. And that place is you. Where you speak and understand the language of the heart. And you don't sit and tell me to get more willpower. And you don't sit there and tell me that it's important that I keep a picture of something I want on the refrigerator so that when I go to the refrigerator, I'll see the picture and I won't eat the food. Now, what kind of stupid idiot would tell a kid that that's 15 years old, 16 years old, and I was hospitalized with dysentery from eating spoiled food? That's how I got dysentery. I ate spoiled food. I was 15, 16 years old when that happened. I wasn't even driving yet, so I had to be 15. That's what happened to me. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body because without the mental thought, without the thought, the food isn't going in my mouth. I can't pick up this water cup. I have a water cup here. It says <clears throat> Scottsdale Healthcare on it because that's where I had my joint replacements. It's a really good water cup. It's, it's plastic. It's pretty indestructible. <clears throat> and it holds like uh, 32 ounces of water. So I put my water in here when I'm working or when I'm doing these things. But I can't even pick up this water thing without thinking about it first. And everything is centered around the mind. All of the 11 steps beyond step one are unconcerned with the physical allergy. It is assumed that you are clean and sober. It is assumed. If you're still drinking, you're on step one. A woman called me up not long ago. She's still eating, but she's on step four. And when I said to her, if you're still eating, you're not on step four, you're on step one, she became very, very upset with me. <clears throat> very upset. She said, my sponsor said, I don't have to be abstinent till I'm done with step four. I said, okay. All right. Whatever. Okay. Who's your sponsor? Uh, toe of the Hun? I don't know. I don't get it. But that's okay. But the bottom line is this. Everything that we're going to endeavor to do, everything that we're going to be talking about beyond step one, the first half of the first step, is going to be about step one. It's, excuse me, going to be about the mind rather than the body. Okay, it's going to be about the mind rather than the body. So we're going to be talking about things that are going to lower the level of emotions. And when the mind is comforted, when the mind is settled, the food will not go in the body. The body never initiates the first mouthful. Notice I don't use the word bite. Bite's too dainty for me. I say mouthful because I've eaten such 
amazing amounts of food in a mouthful that I practically choked to death, practically choked to death. The bottom line is we're going to think about, we're going to do whatever we need to do to quiet the mind. Okay, we're going to be done for today, and we're going to now transition into questions and answers, but I think what I'm going to do is stop the recording. Yes, I'm going to stop the recording, and I haven't opened it up for you to unmute yourself yet. I'm going to stop the recording. How do I do that? Oh, star 